Last thing I'll share with you this morning is um, one of the things we really love doing during Advent is um, we love share, doing split sermons. We do it for a couple different reasons, uh, one, but one of the reasons is we love realizing that we are a chain, we are a link in a long chain of God's believers, and we equip people to do God's work. And so we want to raise up people who can do all kinds of leadership things, including preaching and teaching, and so we split Advent sermons, those kind of things, to give upcoming guys that we think that we see the gifts of teaching and the ability to communicate opportunities to learn how to do that and to do it with us. And so this morning, uh, we have a split sermon with Andrew and Kevin Heller. are going to bring God's word to us this morning. Uh, if you don't know Kevin Heller, he's been a, a leader in a church for a long time. Um, go Bucks! <laughs> and uh, I love the brother to death. I've learned a lot from him. So uh, let me pray and invite Kevin up. Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you this morning for your word. We ask that you would put your hand on both Andrew and Kevin as they preach to us this morning. And for all of us, Lord, that we'd be sensitive to follow the, 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 the leading and the help and the illumination of your spirit. Um, Jesus, you have the words of life, and we want to live and thrive by that. So please, as advertised, Lord, please bring us truth today and set our hearts on fire for you, that we might live and thrive in joy in Christ's name. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, go Bucks, go go Crew. The Crew are MLS champions. I don't know if you guys saw that. I see some Crew shirts out here. You, you woke up as a champion this morning. Congratulations. That's awesome. Well, in case you don't know me, like Scott said, my name is Kevin Heller. Um, my wife and I, Betsy, we've been com coming across City for like ten years now, which is that's that's pretty senior in the Cross City world. Uh, there's there's not many folks that are that are more senior than us now. Uh, and, it, and it's crazy because we used to be the young couple. I'm looking at all these young couples like, we used to be you. So this is what your future looks like. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, so as we've been talking about, right, this is our second uh, Sunday at Advent here at, uh, at Cross City. Just Advent is like the, we're celebrating the coming of, 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 of Jesus, right? Um, last week, Tristan and Joel did a great job, right? I, we were, Betsy and I were, were gone last week. We were in New York City uh, celebrating our 10-year anniversary and... Um, not, not to Cross City, but our marriage, right? <laughs> I would also celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Cross City, right? But um, uh, and, and Tristan and Joel did a great job uh, talking about the need for Jesus, right? So just like a quick synopsis, because I did, I did listen to you guys. I think you, did, you guys did a great job. Just quick synopsis of that, right? We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We need a Savior, right? We need somebody to, 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 that, that allows us to make our way back uh, to God. And um, again, if you, haven't, if you haven't listened to their sermon, Go back. It's it's on the YouTube, as as as, as the youths would say. Um, they don't say that. I'm, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so today, Andrew and I will be discussing the promise of Jesus. So we had the need of Jesus. Now we have uh, the promise of Jesus. And this kind of got me thinking about promises. I, I, I thought about all the promises I've made in my life. Uh, hopefully, I've kept most of my promises. But I know for a fact that I haven't kept all my promises. Sometimes it's probably in a sinful way where I where I just say, oh, boy, it's going to be really hard to keep that promise. I don't want to do that. And other times. It's just because I forget. I forget some of the promises I make. Um, let me tell you, Betsy and I have two boys, Theo and Gabe. They're downstairs. They will not allow me to forget about promises made to them, right? If, if I say, hey, we're going to get donuts in the morning, it's not good morning, Dad. It's where are my donuts, right? Like, like they, they remember things like that. Uh, they're, they're really into that. Um, they've been doing a lot of that. Like, I, They've been into watching um, like some video game stuff online right now. They don't really have a game console yet. They're going to get one 
uh, from, from Santa this year. Um, Santa is Betsy and I in the Heller household. And um, so they've been really watching something called Crash Bandicoot. Do you guys, any of my 90s people remember Crash Bandicoot? Right? Yeah. So they're, they're really into like old school graphics on PlayStation 1 watching some Crash Bandicoot. And if I tell them, hey, we're going to watch Crash Bandicoot the next day, like Theo especially, Dad, you, you said, you said we're watching Crash, right? Um, so it's, it's so great to be reminded of that. And thank goodness we don't have to worry about God forgetting about his promises to us, right? Um, so l- let's talk about uh, some of the ways that God keeps his promises. Just, uh, so just a few of the promises that I really like, especially in, um, in Old Testament scripture. Uh, I'm just going to rattle off a few. Uh, Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Exodus 14.14, 14, The Lord will fight for you. Uh, and you only have to be silent. And one of my, one of my personal favorites uh, that's really been applicable, I think, like this week in my life is, is Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Um, just really, really great stuff, right? Like we have a God who, who keeps his promises. He makes promises, and he, and he, um, he keeps those. Uh, we also have uh, messianic prophecies, right? And we're going to talk about uh, some of those today, uh, prophecies about the, the coming of Jesus. Um, I, I wrote, wrote down a few in here, Genesis 17, 19. Then God said, yes, uh, but your wife Sarah will, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So that's God talking to Abraham, talking about his descendants and the, essentially the lineage that will lead to, to, to Jesus. Isaiah 7, 14, uh, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. That's a very classic Christmas verse, right? And then uh, something that actually Joel hit on last week, Genesis 3, 15. I haven't, I haven't actually put a lot of thought into this until he, uh, he mentioned this in the sermon. Uh, Genesis 3, 15, this is right after the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, and this is God talking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there we have it, right? At the very beginning, uh, as, soon as, as soon as the fall of man happens, um, God knows. God knows we're going to need a savior, and this is a foreshadowing. Now, I don't think that, that Eve and, and, and Adam knew that. I don't think they were like, oh, God's talking about the Messiah, right? But, but um, we see it right away, and, and Romans 16, 20 um, reminds us of that, where it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, which is a pretty cool kid's song, too. Uh, I'm sure, sure you guys all know that kid's song, right? So... So let's dive into a little bit of the passage that Andrew and I will be covering today, uh, which is, um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's, it's what, what was read earlier, Isaiah 9. Uh, I'm just going to cover the first five verses. Uh, so let's just go ahead and start with, uh, with, with verse 1. Uh, but, uh, and Isaiah 9, 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who, who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, in the latter time, he has made glorious by way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Um, so just a, just a couple quick points. First off, this is being written about 700 years or so before uh, the coming of Jesus. And um, obviously this, this sentence, it, it starts with a but. So like all of chapter 8 is really around this gloomy prediction for the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's, it's about the Assyrians coming in and, and taking over this land of, of uh, Zebulun and, and, and Naphtali. Um, but we see this shift in verse 9, right? The, we see this, the, the word but, right? And so, um, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. So a few points. Uh, it mentions uh, Nef- Nebulun and, Zat- and Naphtali. Uh, those are 
th- those were, were both sons of Jacob and, and uh, essentially tribes of, of, uh, of, of Israel were named after them. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali sat on the western, sort of southwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee, um, which happened to be where uh, Capernaum and Nazareth reside, which really, I mean, it, if you read the Gospels, it's kind of the home, home territory of where Jesus is, is completing a lot of his, uh, uh, his, his, his ministry work there. Um, we see Galilee of the nations in there. Now, why, why call it that? So these were lands that bordered the northern Gentile nations, right? This land was likely the poorest of Israel. It definitely didn't have a good reputation. We actually, we're, we're reminded of this in, in John chapter 1, when Jesus approaches the, uh, the first disciples, and uh, Nathaniel hears about Jesus of Nazareth, and Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Like, what good has ever come from Nazareth, right? Um, it, it'd be the same if I said, you know, Michigan, right? Like, what, what good comes from Michigan, right? I'm joking, I'm joking, everyone. But but um, Nazareth did have <laughs> Nazareth did have a, a um, uh, sort of a bad reputation there, and, and it had little value in the eyes of the Jews ever since the days of Isaiah speaking here, uh, when shortly after the Northern Kingdom was taken away by uh, by Assyria. Uh, but because it bordered on Gentile nations, the mentioning uh, of this uh, had in, had indications on what Jesus was doing, right? And, and this is a, a prevalent theme throughout this passage that we're going to be looking at today. Essentially, Jesus well, didn't just come for the, for the Jews. He came for the Gentiles, which is good news for us, right? It's good news for us Gentiles that, that, that um, the way has been opened up to, uh, to all of us, uh, which, is, which is really cool. Uh, of course, there's also this talk of the former time and the latter time, the former time of being this gloomy sort of, sort of time. Um, and again, uh, just hanging on, the, the former time would also include the, the, what was about to happen, which was um, Naphtali and, and um, Zebulun uh, being taken. Um, we see more on glory when we read verse 2, though. And so the former time is, is, um, is gloom, the latter time is glory. And so if we go into verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone. So the people walking in darkness, again, it's, it's Gentiles, right? Gentiles are walking in darkness, and, and, and they've seen this great light, which is Jesus. Matthew chapter 4 speaks about this, where it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, he withdrew into Galilee. After leasing, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in uh, Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so we, right, well, right away we see Zebulun and Naphtali, right? Those, those sound familiar. Um, and we also see in verse 17 there, it says, um, Jesus goes on to say, then it, then it says that Jesus preached saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you want to be out of the darkness and in the light, I think that's a, a pretty clear um, a direction there. It's, it's, it's repent, repent of your sins, follow the Lord. Um, going further into that, uh, where it says people walking in darkness and have seen a great light, um, uh, let me just mention this. This is, I think this, this is a very applicable verse. I, I know I'm kind of quoting a lot of verses right now, but just bear with me right here. This is 1 Peter 1, uh, uh, verses uh, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was also to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what, per, uh, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. 
I really like that last part too, right? Things that angels long to look at. If angels are longing to look upon that, you know uh, that that is worth looking upon. Um, so Peter says that the prophets searched and inquired for the person or time the Spirit was indicating. The person who walked in darkness would see a great light. Uh, it's also important to understand that the audience um, of, of um, Isaiah here likely didn't understand what they were hearing. All, like all, when, when they heard some of these things, they probably thought, this is applicable to us, this is applicable to our land. Like, God will give us our land back, right? This is, they, they, don't, they don't necessarily see um, uh, the, the, the Messiah there, but it's, so, it, it's, it's almost like a form of worship, how we're able to look back and go, man, God knew every step, right? He knew everything that he was doing. And when you can look at it from our lens, man, like that is, it's all inspiring, which is really cool. As we move forward, uh, verse 3 says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So again, you have multiplied the nation. Again, Gentiles are, 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 are involved in this now too. And when we see this, when we look at a few other passages, like Genesis 7, 17.5, where God promises uh, Abraham that he will be a multitude of nations, and then uh, further, Jesus speaking in John chapter 10, verse 16, where he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must also bring them, right? So we're, we're a part of that. Um, it, it, it also mentions you have increased its joy, right? As joy in the harvest. Think about what harvest meant, especially back then. Harvest is a big time now. We just don't think about it, but um, uh, we're fed, right? We're, we're taken care of in earthly, in earthly senses we are, but um, also in, in spiritual senses we are, right? I, I think about um, Jesus uh, speaking in, in John uh, chapter 4, verse 14, where he says, whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst again, right? The Lord provides, um, and, and so that's something to be joyful about. And then as joy when they divide the spoil is, is mentioned uh, in verse 3 as well. So our, our enemy has been defeated. We now have peace. We have peace not only with, with others, but, but really peace with God, and that's, um, uh, that's something that was uh, uh, really a, a, a major point last week of, of, of the need of Jesus. If we move on to verse 4, uh, it says this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. So God breaks the enemies of his people, right? He has broken the backs of our enemies just like the day of Midian. And I don't know if you guys remember this story, uh, but it's in Judges where Gideon has like 22,000 men to go fight the Midianites. And God immediately is just like, that's too many. That's, that's too many men, right? So he whittles it down. And, you know, I'm sure Gideon thought, like, oh, we whittled it down. This is probably good. And God's like, no, no, it's still too many. So he takes the number all the way down to 300. And so it's 300 uh, uh, men following Gideon fighting. Uh, this is how the, 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 Midian, the Midianites are, are described in Judges here. It sa- says that they lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. That's a lot, right? And, and when, when, you, when you look at that, when you look that, that, that God was still able to accomplish a victory with just 300 people against such great odds, right? It's just a, such, a, such a stunning victory that only God, have, God could have performed, right? Like, that's the point. Uh, Isaiah is saying that somebody has to break that yoke, right? Like, somebody has to, somebody has to, to, um, to win that battle for us. And then moving on into, finally, into, into verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, the enemies aren't just defeated, right? They're, we even use their clothing um, uh, for, for fuel for the fire. And throughout all this, we have glory in, 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 in Jesus, right? We are justified through faith um, in him uh, uh, through grace. Um, 
With that said, our worldly lives do not and will not always continue to, to, to be really, um, I guess, without gloom, right? Like, we're still going to experience bad things. This isn't saying, like, in your worldly life, you won't experience bad things. I'm going to be honest. This has been kind of a stressful week in the Heller household. We've had a lot of things going on, right? We had, we've had surgeries, and we've had uh, sick kids, and, and um, just feeling overwhelmed at work and busy at school and extracurricular activities. This is a time of year when I'm sure a lot of you guys are experiencing that too. We had a weird thing yesterday where like half the cars on our block had their tires stabbed. Like our, 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 our tire was one of those things. Um, just a lot of things, right? Um, and and it, it, just, it just makes me go back and think like, thank goodness that God made, like when, he, when God makes a promise, uh, he intends to, to, to keep that promise. And we see that in Romans. And this is where all kind of uh, end things before Andrew comes up. So Romans chapter 8, verse 35 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. All of these things actually serve to unite us, right? When we go through tribulation, when we go through trials, when, when the Israelites went through tribulation and trials, that was a way for God to bring his people back to him. That's a way for, 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 for people to cry out to the Lord. May that be our, our cry this Christmas season as well, right? God knew that we would need someone. God knew that we would need someone to break our yoke. He knew that our sin was too great to overcome. God makes promises, and as Scott said before, right, we have faith in these things that, 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 that these things will, will come true. So all the glory that Isaiah talks about is a result of the fact that God made promises of the coming Messiah. And let us remember these promises this Christmas season. I'm going to kick it over to Andrew. Amen. Thanks, brother. It's a good word. What an amazing passage. What a uh, somewhat familiar passage to many of us, especially this season where it's Christmas time and um, we, we hear these sort of things rattled off in songs and people are put them on their, their card when they take their family picture and they have this verse at the bottom. And, and, and this verse is, is kind of thrown at us a lot during this time of year, but, but when we really kind of stop and soak in what this is actually saying, as Kevin was unpacking for us, like, there's, there's just so much meat in here, like within even just the context of what it is so we can understand what uh, the setting is, is happening. But there's, there's all these layers, right? There's these layers of, of what's happening to the Israelites right then. There's these layer of that this is, this is woven into what God is trying to get the Israelites to look forward to. And now for us, as we on the other side of Christ get to look back into this text, like he said, through that lens of, of post-Christ, and even woven in to the end of this is this promise of even beyond us. And we're going to talk about that. that, that this, there's these layers that we see unfolding that God is, God is working in and through his plan of redemption for his people. That, that, that the seed is being planted and these, these pointers are looking forward to the glory that is to come in Christ. And so for us... I think it can be easy to read through this, this text and hear this text and, and see this text and, and maybe kind of breeze through it and not, and not catch a lot of that significance right away. 
Um, and I think there's a couple there's a couple of reasons for that. One, like we, like we talked about, we we understand that this was written hundreds of years before Christ, and it's and it's it can be hard for us to remember that sometimes. And we read all this, and it just makes sense to us who this is talking about. And it's like, oh yeah, that's talking about Jesus, but. But forgetting, like, these are words that are very specifically given at a particular point in time that were hundreds and hundreds of years before they came to be. And if you've, if you've never done sort of a, your research or some, some study on um, these, these prophecies that Kevin was talking about, these Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, you really should do that. It's significant. It's not just like a couple. It's not just like one or two that we sort of hang our hat on. There are many, many, many tens, twenty, hundreds of these, these illusions, these pointings, these prophecies to the coming of the Messiah. And not just generally, but very specifically, very specifically given details about the coming Messiah, about where he would be born, about the fact that he would be born of a virgin, as Kevin talked about, that he would go to Egypt, all these things that, that just couldn't possibly be true apart from the hand of God working in and through these prophecies to bring about the one, the true Messiah, Jesus. It's not coincidental. It, can't, it couldn't be coincidental, right? And it's actually very convincing evidence of the reliability of Scripture. The claim that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. It's convincing evidence. A lot of, a lot of great evidence, apologetically. But that's not our point for today. I think the most significant thing about this passage isn't simply that it was a promise and a prophecy that we now get to see that actually came true. It is that, very significantly. But even more so, we now know that it came true in the person and work of Jesus. And this passage for the believer is incredibly hope-filled. It's hope-filled and it's hope-giving. It stirs hope in the heart of the one who's, who's now looking back at the promises of God come true. And it's hope giving to the people of Israel at the time to look, to look forward to the coming of the Messiah, to the promises of God continuing to be fulfilled. It's, it's injected with sort of, sort of high-test hope right at its heart, right at its core. And that's God's intentions for us. As Kevin pointed out, the main idea that we see here in this text is that God is promising to flip the lights on for His people. To flip the lights on from darkness to light. And He's doing so in a way that is is unexpected. And it's unquestionably accomplished by God and by God alone. This is what He's wanting to communicate. Not only is He going to do this, Not only is he going to take his people from darkness to light, he's going to flip the lights on, but he's going to do it in a way that is is unexpected, that we're not going to to see necessarily coming in the exact way that we might think. And he's going to do it in a way that is unquestionably only done by him and through him. This is why he's pointing back to these these things from the past, right? The, the, The story of Midian, where it's you look at that story and you're like, there's no way that could have happened unless God did it. God is the one bringing this about. Gideon could not take any credit for that story. And this is the way God wanted it to be. 
that, that we would leave that, we would be able to look back on that. In the midst of it, they would see that and recognize that, and we would be able to look back on that and go, that was of God and only God. And this is, this is part of what we're, we're, we're pulling out of this text this morning as we're, as we're reading this. God perfectly and precisely keeps His promises. God perfectly and precisely keeps His promises. He perfectly keeps them. He's never not kept one. And He precisely keeps them in the very way that He says that He's going to keep them. He goes over and above and beyond what we can even imagine. And God is with incredible precision, bringing salvation to his people, we see in this text. With incredible precision. He knows what our greatest problem is. He knows it better than we do often. He knows what our greatest need is. He knows what our greatest problem is. And he's not willing to let us settle for anything less than total and complete salvation. Oftentimes we want to negotiate. Oftentimes we, wanna, we want partial salvation, or maybe we think it's full salvation, but we, we, we have no concept generally the depth to which we need to be saved. And God is saying, I, I won't let you settle for lesser than the full and total salvation that I can offer you in and through the Messiah that's going to come. And he's going to unfold this throughout the, the entirety of the Bible. The depth that we see that the, of the need, right? This is what they were talking about last week, Joel and Tristan. This depth of the need that goes far beyond even what we can even comprehend. But God shows us pictures of this depth, of how far we are from Him, and how dark it really is, how, how blind we really are, how, how enslaved we really are to our sin, how helpless we are to really fix or remedy the problem. And He says, you, you may or may not fully grasp or understand the depth of the problem, but the solution that I'm bringing to you is more than sufficient to meet the need. It's perfect and it's precise. And it, goes, it goes deep, it goes deep to the heart of the real problem at hand. God's not just looking to slap a band-aid on and, and just kind of get us through to the end. No, he's, he's taking death to life. He's making all things new. This is what he's up to. It's significant, right? God knows. He sees. He sees us. He knows us. He knows what we're going through. He knows. He, he sees the defeats that we go through. He sees what breaks us down. He's aware of the pain and the turmoil that we face when we live in the midst of this broken, right, sin-filled world. He sees it. He knows it. He knows our need, right? To our weakness, he's no stranger. We sing that Christmas time every year. He knows. He's aware. He sees you right in the midst of your need, whatever it is, of your weakness. He's not a stranger. He's aware of it. And he's compassionate to it. And he has the remedy for it. It's what we see here in this text. And we read the, the first five verses as Kevin showed us. It's, this, it's sort of like building up to this crescendo, right? It's like, it's like these promises of God, these, 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 these things that God is, is positing before us, right? He's saying all of these things, and he's, and he's piling up these things that are to come. And it seems to be leading to, this, to the crescendo, Right? right into this description of this, this great warrior king. 
The greatest warrior king who could ever have been conceived of, right? And it is, but not necessarily right in the way that we would expect it to be. God lays out this picture of one who will bring light from darkness. One who will give joy and harvest and the spoils of battle. One who breaks his people free from all oppression and all evil rulers, right? One who's a tramping warrior who uses the clothes of his enemies as fuel for the fire. The great conqueror, the great rescuer. Who will it be? We'll just read the next verse, right? A child. You're like, what? A child? Like, that's not what I was expected to say next. <laughs> For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Ray Ortland says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. Think about the significance of that. Think about how unexpected that is. The power of God is so far superior to all the powers and all the principalities of this world that he can defeat them with a child. And this child provides every remedy that our sin-infected hearts, our minds, our bodies need. Long before we were born, before any of us came to be, God appointed for us the one who would be the solution to every symptom of sin that infects all of us. Every, every need that we have, that we've been talking about, all the greatest needs that we have, God has all along promised the one who would meet every one of those needs. Take care of every symptom And in this person, we see that Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that very explicitly. All the promises of God find their yes in him. He's the solution. Let's look at this description of this Jesus that we see here. And remember, keep in mind, this is 700 or so years possibly before Jesus actually comes. Verses 6 and 7. It says, The government shall be upon his shoulder. As sinners, we want to rule ourselves, right? This is kind of what, right at the heart of what sin actually is. We want to be the kings of our own life. We, want our, we choose our way over the ways of God. We want to call the shots. But God knows that our desire for self-rule will destroy us. He knows this better than we do. And he knows that in order for us to truly walk in joy and freedom, we must be rescued from the bondage. Now catch this. Catch this language, right? We must be rescued from the bondage of trying to rule our own lives. Jesus is the true and the better king. The one that the people have been longing for since the beginning. Jesus came to liberate us from, as we've been talking about in Colossians, the kingdom of darkness. And transfer us into his kingdom, his kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved son. The government will be on his shoulder, his rule and his reign, his rules, his, his, his ways, his laws, 
They're good and they're right. Even when we're blind to them, even when we don't think they're good and right, God knows what we need more than we do. And He gives us this. And He tells us that this, this one will be the ruler. It will all be on His back. All the right and good and true rule and reign will be on Him. It says that He's a wonderful counselor. Sin makes us blind and foolish. We know this. Sin makes us blind and it makes us foolish. Proverbs talks about this a lot, this idea of foolishness, of being a fool. Sin causes us to love what is evil and hate what is good. But Jesus came to free us from our foolish denial of His kingship. Even when we don't want it. Even when we look at it and we say, no thanks. God still makes a way. Even in our darkened hearts, God flips the lights on and we see. He gives us new hearts and He gives us new minds. He gives us new eyes. And we're able to see now. We're able to, we're able to move away from our foolish ways. We're able, to, we're able to follow this counsel, the one, the wonderful counselor came to lead us and guide us in the way that we should go. And His ways are wonderful. He's not just the counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. His ways are good. They're not just right. They're also good. And He came to rescue fools like us from ourselves and lead us in the way that we should go. It says that He is mighty God. Colossians says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. The one that they are describing, the one that they are talking to, talking about here in this text, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. From the time He was a small infant in a manger, to the end where he will reign and conquer his enemies, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He was no less God when he was an infant. He is God. And he is mighty. He is mighty to save. And he is mighty to defeat sin and Satan and death. By His mighty power, He accomplished for us what we could not accomplish on our own. It is His strength that brings all of this to be. It is His might. It is His power that overcomes what we cannot overcome. Where we do not have the strength to persevere. Where we do not have the strength to, to free ourselves from our slavery and our bondage. We do not have what it takes. It is His might. It is His power that conquers and overcomes that's who Jesus is. He's the mighty God. And at Christmas, we see this mighty God humbled Himself to a manger. He humbled Himself to serve. He humbled Himself even to the point of death. And He does for us what we could not do on our own. Verse 6 also says that He is the everlasting Father. Jesus is one with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's one. By His life, His death, and His resurrection, we now are brought into the family of God. 
We're, we're transferred into his kingdom. But it gets even better, right? He doesn't just, he doesn't just bring us inside the, the walls of the, of the kingdom and say, all right, figure it out. No, he brings us in. He brings us in tight. He brings us into his house. He brings it into his, his dining room, and he seats us at his table with him, right? He brings us into the household, the very, the very family of God. It's a, it's a familial love. It's not just the love that a, that a, that a far-off dictator would have for his constituents. He is king, but he's also our family. And he brings us in and he adopts us into his family. And he loves us in the way that a father loves. Committed and sacrificial. And he brings us in with open arms and he seats us at his table. A table of his father and we enjoy him forever. Forever. Next it says he is the prince of peace. Jesus will bring peace. He's the prince of peace. And he brings peace first and foremost by offering himself as the sacrifice. Our sin makes us enemies of God. Enemies and aliens. But by paying that penalty for our sin, he makes it possible for us, for those who trust in him, to have peace with God again. We've talked about this. And this is the great announcement that the angels make at Jesus' birth, right? Now there can be peace on earth. Why? Because the, the, the Prince of Peace is here. This is what they're seeing. They're noticing. They're, they're, they're noticing what Isaiah is talking about here, that, that he will be the Prince of Peace. And they're saying, the Prince of Peace is here, and he's here to usher in a peace that you can't even fathom. A depth of peace that you can't even comprehend. It's not just a ceasefire. It's peace. It's true peace. There's really peace on earth. And finally, we see that this peace that he brings by his rule and his reign will never end and it will never stop increasing. It's never going to end. And not only that, it's never going to stop increasing. It would be enough for him to say it's never going to end. We would take that. But it's never going to stop increasing on top of that. In, the pro- in this promise of Jesus coming, we also see a promise of his second coming. The second advent of Jesus. That we now sit in between the first advent of Jesus and the second. And we long now for this second advent of Jesus to come. His kingdom will never stop expanding He will conquer everyone and everything. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming. It is a promise. As sure as these promises are that the the Messiah would come the first time, and we've seen it all come very precisely and perfectly, this will come to be. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those that are His will enjoy His rule and reign forever and ever. And our joy in the midst of that will be ever increasing. 
It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, isn't it? Like, for the rest of eternity, our joy with Christ will be ever-increasing. Just as His kingdom is expanding, our joy in Him will be expanding. And when He comes again, He's not just coming back to make a few more tweaks. He's coming back to make all things right. Every broken system, every wrong, every evil and unjust thing will be brought to justice. It will be made right. And He will sit on His throne forever. And we can bank on this. We can push all of our chips in on this reality of this coming to be. Because we've already seen the first coming and He did all that He said He would do. And now we can trust that He will follow through. And how can we know? It tells us in the last line. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <laughs> Period. Full stop. The Lord will do this. He has put His heart into this. He has committed Himself to doing this with zeal and it will get done so we can have hope because we've seen him do it before and now we can trust that we're going to see him do it again the lord of hosts will do this amen let's pray father we praise you this morning for your word we thank you for the fact that you keep your promises we thank you that you've given us an account of the promises that you have kept and we can, look on, we can look back on them and we can celebrate and we can rejoice. And we can see your hand in and through all of history. How your hand has stayed committed to your people. How you've lived up to every word that you've ever spoken. And God, we trust this morning that you will do that. That you will keep us, as Kevin said, you will keep us. That there is nothing that can take us from your hand. You've committed to us, and there's nothing that can take us out of your hand. And God, we trust that one day we will be ever-increasing in joy with you forever and ever. Help us in this season, God, as, in as much as we can to wrap our minds around this reality. Let it fill us with hope. Let it fill us with peace and rest. Let it fill us with trust of you and who you are. Let it spill out into love and compassion to others around us. That we would release our own visions of what our kingdom should look like and we would cling tightly to yours. And by your grace, would you help us to do that? And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.